0: Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter six. we will continue our study today and we 're in the Last of a miniseries that we 've been doing on the subject of prayer uh, we 're actually in the sub a subset of a subset of a subset in the teachings of the Gospel of Matthew as we're looking into the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Now, the larger study, of course, that we're doing is in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the Gospel of the kingdom of Christ. And Matthew uh, presents Jesus as the rightful heir to the throne of David. Uh, Jesus is actually the last king of the Davidic line. Uh, He is the one who seals up that line, and he will establish a, a kingdom where he rules in perfect Peace and righteousness. The subset of Matthew that we're in right now, one of the subsets, is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what we find in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we know this, that although that Jesus is not now reigning in a physical kingdom upon the earth, yet he does have a spiritual kingdom. And we who are the people of God, who trusted Christ as Savior, we are right now living in that spiritual kingdom. Now, this particular uh, sermon that Jesus preached, the the Sermon on the Mount, is actually about life in that kingdom. And this portion of Scripture is not for somebody way off in the future somewhere when the physical kingdom comes, neither it's for those in the near future when that might happen. But really, this sermon is for every one of us sitting in this room today. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Sermon on the Mount is for you. And what we learn here are standards that God sets for his kingdom. And we find in the teachings of this sermon that the standards are set so high that there's really not a person here, not the preacher, not anyone, who could actually live up to the standards that God has set. No person in his natural abilities could ever live up to the standard of God. In verse number 48 of chapter 5, we have established there what is God's standard. Jesus said that standard is perfect. And since none of us are perfect, we can't live up to God's standard. But there is a way that we can reach that standard. And that is that we have to have a righteousness that's greater than our own. And that righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches that we receive the righteousness of Christ when we put our faith in Him. Now, drilling a little bit further down into the sermon, we come to chapter 6, where Jesus is speaking on the subject of worship. In the first part of the sermon, he talked about the inadequate theology. Of the people and of their leaders. And in this part of the sermon, he's speaking about inadequate worship. And we notice in verses 1 through 18 that three areas of worship were woefully wrong in the practice of the people. They were hypocritical about their giving, hypocritical about praying, and hypocritical in works of personal devotion. And of those three different areas, prayer is the one that stands out as the most serious because prayer is man's highest spiritual activity. And this part of our worship is so important that Jesus gave specific, detailed instructions about the right way to pray. And so what we've been doing for the past several weeks is to go over every line of the Lord's Prayer, to look at every phrase very carefully, to see what Jesus meant by each of these sayings. And in doing so, we hope to discover the real meaning of the Lord's Prayer, Now, today's message concerns the very last line. We're at the end of it now, the very last line. And we want to talk about today the importance of the last phrase where Jesus says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And I want to title today's message, The Respect of Prayer. This is respect for God. God is respected in the beginning of the prayer. He's praised in the beginning of the prayer and also praised here at the end. So we're going to begin reading or reciting the prayer if you choose to do it that way. It's the last message that I have on this particular subject. So if you'd stand with me, what I'd like for all of you to do is just read this with me. If you read it out loud with me, uh, look at Matthew chapter 6 and let's start with verse number 9. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and ask for your power in preaching this message today. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be among us, that you'd help us to understand very clearly what Jesus meant by the very last line of this prayer. And we give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We have discussed seven different topics concerning the Lord's Prayer as we've gone through each of these phrases Our Father which art in heaven was the relationship of prayer. Hallowed be thy name is the reverence of prayer. Thy kingdom come is the rule of prayer. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, that is the rapport of prayer. Give us this day our daily bread is the resources in prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that is repentance in prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is righteousness in prayer. Now finally, we come to the very last line, and this is respect in prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now when we come to this last line, the first thing that comes to my mind is the song that's made out of this prayer. I think all of you are familiar with the song, the Lord's Prayer. And there's this great swelling crescendo that comes at the end of that song in which everyone sings together, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And this past week in the church that I was attending, uh, they had scripture reading and then they had prayer. And then after the prayer was over, the entire congregation of about 3,000 people sang the Lord's Prayer. And when they came to that very ending of the song, it began to get louder and louder. And they sang that last line, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'd sing that for you today, but I want you to hear the rest of the message and I don't want you to go home. But as you hear that very last line of the song and you hear that swelling crescendo, when you hear that being sung, you would almost get the impression that that very last line, that this must be the most important line of the Lord's Prayer. I'm not going to say that it is or it isn't, but it's very odd that there are people who are divided about the ending. There are some people who do not believe that this should actually be a part of the prayer. Now, you may even have a notation in some of your study Bibles, perhaps in your reference column of your Bible, that says that some ancient manuscripts do not include this last line. Now, I don't want to go too far off of my subject today, but I do want to say this, that I thank God for the King James Bible. I think the translators included this. They did include it because they thought that this line was authentic. I'm glad that we don't use a version of the Bible where we're always left wondering and always speculating, is this a part of God's Word or should this be left out? Is this other part, is that a part of God's Word? And we're always wondering, really, who has the authority to tell us which of this book here is actually words that God said? Now, I have confidence that this King James Version is God's Word to English-speaking people, that it's the very best version that we can we can read and try to understand. I think that it is authentic, and it helps us to really know what God said and what He didn't say. Now, in about a, little, about a year or so, in 2011, the King James Version will be 400 years old, and it has stood the test of time. And I'm thankful to the Lord that this is the version that we're using. Now, having said that, uh, those who doubt the authenticity of this last line will still use these words in their public recitations, in their public readings of the Lord's Prayer. Without this line, the prayer just sort of drops off without a suitable ending. Now, as I said, I do believe that this is a part of the prayer, and like all the other parts that we've studied, this particular part does has its significance. So why is this part of the prayer important? Well, let's begin with this today. Number one is the focus of the prayer. I'd like you to look up your page, or look up the page in your Bible to the Verses that are immediately preceding the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus says in verse number 5, he says, "...and when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward." That word hypocrites occurs three times in this section about worship. And the intent of Jesus using that word is to show us that the focus of worship was off for these people. In three instances, the giving, the praying, and the fasting, all of that was concentrated on self rather than on God. Now, prayer is the highest priority of the three areas of worship, and that's because we are communicating directly with God. And if we are to turn prayer around and make prayer about ourselves, that is really the height of blasphemy. Jesus starts this prayer out with God, and he ends it with God. And that shows us that God is always preeminent in prayer. And what we are to do always is to glorify God. We're never to use our prayers as something to impress others. It's not about us. It's not about our spirituality. It's all about God. And yet, in spite of the teaching that Jesus gives here in this model prayer, there are people that in their piety, supposed piety, will actually take the Lord's Prayer and turn it around and make it about them. There are churches that use this prayer as a form of liturgy. They repeat it week after week mindlessly. And in their repetitions, they have made this a part of their formal worship. They give God lip service as they read the words of this prayer. But they really do not understand the God that this prayer is about. Now, in the previous section, Jesus had also talked about vain repetitions of the heathens. And he said that people will come to God and they will repeat time after time after time the very same phrases over and over and over again. And they think because they do that that God is going to hear them for their much speaking. But we see that Jesus shows us here in this prayer that the very structure of the prayer is to take the focus away from man and to put all that focus upon God. It's not to be a mechanical recitation that really doesn't understand the God that the prayer is about. I would say that what the Pharisees, or what we're doing today, I should say, is doubling the confusion of this, because the Pharisees, all that they would do was to make prayer about themselves. They would make it mechanical, but that was their own prayers that they were using. And I think it's terrible that people would take what is supposed to be a prayer that teaches us how to pray to God and turn that into even more erroneous worship. That's doubly heinous, and it's doubly confusing. Now, as in all of our prayers, when we repeat this, or when we use this as a skeleton to construct our own prayers, the central focus must be on God. And so, in the very last line of the prayer, Jesus says, For thine, for yours, is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Now, here I think that we see, first of all, the circle of worship. This prayer ends right where it starts. The prayer begins with God, our Father. And it says, hallowed be thy name. And then it ends with, for thine is. So we start out here praising God. And as we go through the prayer, we circle right back around again where we're praising God. And we keep all the focus on him. Now that was very different from the way that the Pharisees prayed. They prayed to God without actually taking thought of God. In their prayers, you would not find the thy petitions. It was only my petitions. It's always self-exaltation. And whenever they did get around to finally asking God for the things that they wanted, they did the very same thing that many Christians are doing today. They ask amiss. They asked for the wrong things. They asked for things that glorify itself, not asking for God's will in order that they might consume it upon their lust. And so there's much correction that needs to be made about prayer. Prayer today for many people is a mindless thing. It's a thoughtless thing. Most Christians do not realize that when you bow your head and you pray to God that you're stepping right into the throne room of God. And as you do that, you must acknowledge the God that you're serving. You must acknowledge the King. We don't come with humility when we pray any longer. We don't come with dependence upon God. We just show up. And we have God, hand God our wish list as if if we have a right that we can demand from God. But I think in prayer we really ought to tremble when we approach God. There ought to be a quiver in our lips when we speak because we reverently fear who God is. God is not our genie in the sky. God is not, it does not exist to make us happy and wealthy and carefree. Your happiness and your satisfaction is never God's concern. God's concern is his own glory. His glory is always first and his worship is always first. And so we see in this prayer that prayer is sandwiched um, two, in two ways, sandwiched at the beginning with God's glory and with God's glory on the other side at the end. And in the middle comes all these other things. Now, I want you to understand that God must be praised because God deserves to be pray, praised. We have been made for God's glory. and We ought not ever be too big for our britches and think that we can stand on holy ground in the presence of God without taking our shoes off. Now, that might seem a little bit harsh to you to talk about prayer in this way. It may not sound like the Jesus is your fishing buddy type of mentality that you hear preached in most churches today. But I don't mean to be harsh about this, and I don't think God is harsh about it. He's still the loving Father of prayer. He's still our Father in the prayer. God does deserve or desire our fellowship. He does desire to communicate with us, but God wants us to come in His way. And when we come in his way, worshiping in the right way, that's when blessings will flow out to us in magnanimous ways that we can't even describe. You see, God simply wants you to understand where he is and who he is and who you are. About 150 years ago, the theology of God began to slip. Revivalism came in. What's called revivalism, and while that was great, and while uh, hearts were stirred up, and there were people that were saved, the theology of revivalism slowly started to degrade the theology of the kingship and the sovereignty of God. And what happens when you have a degraded view of God, you're always going to end up with wrong worship of God. Your prayers will be wrong, and your fellowship with God will be strained. So we need to get back in our prayers to fully respecting God. And when we do, when we do respect him as we should, our prayers will be reorganized so that they match up with Matthew chapter 6 and the model prayer that Jesus gave. Prayer begins with God's majesty and it ends with God's majesty. Prayer comes full circle, 360 degrees, so that you end up where you start, that all is for the glory of God. Now we also find in the focus of the prayer that there is the center of ownership. There's the circle of worship and the center of ownership. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Now you might want to underline the word thine in your bible so the next time that you read that you, you th- read this you'll see the underline and these thoughts will come back to you. How should I pray? Thine is the kingdom. You see this is about God. The kingdom is his. It's not our kingdom. The power is his. We don't go in our own strength or in our own power. The glory is his. We never exalt ourselves. Everything is his. And when you look at it that way, the hour petitions of the prayer begin to make more sense. Give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because it's God's to give. We take out of God's treasure trove. We take out of God's stockpiles. We take out of God's warehouses everything that we need. These are yours, God. And the only reason that we even have the right to ask for this is because you told me that I could. You gave me the permission to come to you. It's yours to give. All the provisions are yours to give. And then he says, forgive us our debts. That's the second our petition. You, God, are the one who is offended by my sins. Grant me the indulgence of your forgiveness. I come in sackcloth and ashes before you. I come with my head bowed low. Forgive me, O God, of my trespasses. It's yours to forgive. As David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. And then that third, our petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, this is your path. You direct my life. You order my affairs. God, give me the grace to walk in your ways and never let me give place to the evil one. Now, do you see this? Whether we're talking about the physical, the mental, or the spiritual, all is God's to give. He owns us body, soul, and spirit. And friend, that is the whole of man. That is our entire existence. And lest you forget this, it's God who made us and not we ourselves. For thine, Lord, for thine, Lord, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now that leads me to a next observation. Number two is the fullness of prayer. I wish I had flow charts and computer graphics and a jumbotron up here so I could demonstrate all of this to you. I'm really at a loss to explain it to its full extent. I'm not worthy to even talk about what we're speaking of here. You know, when Isaiah saw that vision of God when God was sitting on his throne, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." And that's how I feel as I look at this last phrase of the Lord's Prayer. Who is adequate to explain the fullness of God? I hope that you don't read, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, that you don't read that mindlessly. Don't read it repetitiously and frivolously. Come with respect for the fullness of God's glory. For Jesus says, for thine is the kingdom. Now, what does that tell me? For thine is the kingdom. Well, it tells me that God has the right to rule. Now, perhaps you've heard me say this before, so I'll ask this question rhetorically. What is the problem with the world? It's a big question, isn't it? We could form a debate team today, and we could discuss that one for hours, and perhaps we could come up with all different kinds of answers. What is the problem with the world? But I think that it boils down to this question Who has the right to rule? You see, we have a problem because each of us that are in this room today, we think that we have the right to rule. Whatever you want, whatever you desire that is against what I want, causes a problem between you and me. And the whole problem is that I want to be God and you want to be God. My opinion is better than your opinion. My desires take precedent over your desires. My needs are always greater than your needs. And that's simply because they're my opinions. They're my desires and they're my needs. In other words, I'm God. And you want to be God. And that means that we're going to spend all of our time trying to knock each other off of the throne. And that's the whole problem with man. And it started out with what seemed to be a very little innocuous statement that was made by Satan in the Garden of Eden. He spoke to Eve and he said, If you eat of the tree, you will be like God. Now Satan was only repeating his own desires, his own words, because he said that too. He said, I shall be like God. And so the whole human race has always walked down that path. I want to be God and I want to sit on the throne. Now here then is where our problem needs to be solved. We need to decide who has the right to rule. And when we all come to the same consensus that there should be one ruler and that all of us are to do what that one ruler says, then that will end all the strife that's between us. Well, Jesus has already answered the question, hasn't he? He answered the question for us when he said, for thine is the kingdom. And so if the kingdom belongs to God, then who has the right to rule? Now, you see, not only does God have the right to rule, but he's not waiting on us to to make up our minds that that's actually so. He's not waiting until the whole issue settles down a little bit, and then when we're all agreed upon this, then God is going to make up a list of rules that we can live in His kingdom. How are we going to live in His kingdom? Do you know God's already done that? He's already given us the list of rules. He has the right to rule. He's already given the commandments. That's how we live in His kingdom. And if you go to God at any time with thoughts of yourself that you're going to impose yourself over on top of God, above God's rules and God's will, then you're only asking for the king of this universe to lower the scepter right down into the middle of your head. God is going to crush all opposition. If you don't believe it, read the back of the book. The Bible says that all are going to bow down to him. All are going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And that means it's going to happen willingly or unwillingly. And you need to decide right now, which is that going to be? Who has the right to rule in the kingdom? Jesus says, for thine is the kingdom. Then he says, and the power. For thine is the kingdom and the power. Here we see that God brings peace through power. Now there's so much in the last words of this, kingdom, power, and glory. I mean, We could spend hours and hours speaking about it. But who could repeat this? Prayer is a mindless exercise when you realize what you're saying. When you say the word power, you put the fullness of God, uh, fullness of power in God's hands, and who or what can stand against God? Now, I can talk about God's power in many, many different ways, but I'm going to confine it to just one of the ways which flows out into all of the others. What did Paul say? Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The word power there is the Greek word dunamis. It's the same word that we find here in Matthew 6:13. Very same word in Romans 1:16. It's the same word, as you know, where we get dynamite. The gospel is the power of God. It's God's dynamite. That changes the whole landscape of the world. The gospel is what God uses to make you see who has the right to rule. The gospel changes the worship of all these other billions of gods that are out there, also known as you and me, into the worship of the one who has the right to rule. The gospel is what puts you into your place. And when you are in your place, and I'm in in my place, and when we both recognize who the ruler is... What does that do? It brings peace between us. Now you and I have broken God's law. And so not only does that cause strife between us, but it also causes strife with God. I mean, most importantly, that causes strife with God. Now the word of God has a, has a term that it uses for that. It calls it, it, calls it enmity. We have enmity with God. Now, that's a word that simply means hostility. Is there peace when there is hostility? Well, of course not. You have to remove that hostility. And that's what the gospel does. It's the power of God that zaps out the hostility between us and God. And when it's removed by faith in Christ, then we have peace. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's relate that again to the kingdom of God. God has the power to rule in his kingdom. Now... He can't turn things over to you and me because we can't rule in God's kingdom. We can't rule subjects that are more powerful than us. If the kingdom is mine, do you know what happens? I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose the kingdom to Satan. You know why? Because Satan's more powerful than I am. If I'm the king, then I'm also going to lose the kingdom to some of you. I mean, some of you guys are bigger than me. You can beat the stuffing out of me. And so if I'm the king, I'm going to lose my my kingdom. Only God is the one who's big enough to rule in his kingdom. See, the entire universe is his kingdom. I don't have any idea how all this stuff works. Do you know how all this works? I don't. I'd lose my mind trying to figure out how to run the universe. I'd be like what some of the scientists have done. They think they know... And so you ask them, well, where did all this come from? And they say, oh, well, there was this uh, little speck about the size of a BB, and it exploded, and out came the stars and the planets and a duck-billed platypus. Do you believe that? I mean, I need somebody in charge like that, like I need another hole in my head. I need somebody who knows how to rule this universe, who has the power to do it. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel straightens people out on this stuff. See not only does God have the power to rule in his kingdom but he's the one who began this kingdom in his infinite wisdom. The fullness of power belongs to God and that means whether you're talking about the material universe or you're speaking about how a man can actually be made right with God. Peace can only be made through power. The sooner that we surrender to the power of God the better off we're going to be because God takes no prisoners. When you lose to God, you know what happens? Eternal death is the result. God takes no prisoners. Now quickly now, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, we also see that God must be magnified above measure. The glory belongs to God and God alone. You know why I love Berean Baptist Church so much? What is it that makes this church such a great church? You know, I hope that you don't say that, well, this church is a great church because... We have such a wonderful children's ministry. I hope you don't say that. I hope you say this is a great church because of God. You know, there's a, there's a long list of things that people are looking for in their ideal church. It's not uncommon for people to ask, well, what about your music? What kind of music do you have at Brian Baptist? Do you have a band? What about sports? Uh, do you have a softball team? What about your youth? I mean, do you have a beatnik youth director who's really hip to what all the youngsters really like today? What about your senior citizens? Do you have a bingo night? What about your married couples? I mean, how many of those do you have? What about your services? Are your services convenient for my schedule? Can you make Saturday night the new Sunday so that I can have more of the weekend for me? And on and on you go, the things that people are looking for in the list of the ideal church. But how many times do people ask this, what about the preaching? What about the preaching of the Word of God? Do you read the Bible and do you honor God? Will I learn about Christ? And will you teach me how to be in subjection into God's will and how I can order my entire life around God? How many times have you seen that in advertisements for churches? How many times have you ever seen this as an advertisement for the church? If you come here, we're going to preach the hell right out of you. If you come to church, we're going to preach against your sin, and we're going to keep doing it until you get it right. Come to our church, because this is not a church for people who don't like church. This is for people with steel-toed shoes. Come to our church, because in some way, in some, uh, in some way, in so, or somehow, we're going to offend your godless lifestyle. I promise you, you are going to do that when you come to our church. You don't hear that, do you? Those aren't the kind of advertisements that you hear for church. It's never about magnifying God. To God be the glory? Well, who wants to hear that? Give me a smoke machine. Give me a rock band. Give me a pastor who stands behind the pulpit in, 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 in tattered blue jeans and make the atmosphere like a nightclub downtown. That's what I'm all about. It's all about me, baby. I'm the guy who doesn't like church, so you fix it for me so that I will. Now friend, if you think that's what this church is all about, then you can have your smoke machine and you're going to be the fuel for the fire. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Where are the worshipers in the church today who will not even lift their heads? That they'll smite themselves on the breast and they say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Where are the worshipers who say, woe is me? As Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips. Can you imagine Jesus saying to these Pharisees, how can I make the kingdom fit your lifestyle? Will you worship me if I make this fun for you? Do you know why God never says, let's do this your way? You know why God never says, any kind of worship is okay just as long as you pretend that I'm in there somewhere? He never says that because worshiping your way is always limiting. It's always limiting If the church tailors worship to the way that you want it, God's glory is always limited because what you will always do is try to share in some of God's glory. And so you have people who come to church and they say, well, I don't like the music. They don't like it unless they can tap their toes to it, unless they can sway in the aisles while the music is being sung or played. And they don't like it unless there's some kind of an emotional outburst that goes along with that. They're just not interested in it. It just doesn't move them. And so they don't like the worship in the church if they don't go out saying, Wow, that was really a buzz, wasn't it? So where's the focus? They say, Our Father, just like we do, but then they move to the Lord of the dance. This is where Jesus puts his foot down, and he says, For I say unto you, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, I could go on with those kinds of things all day. Why is Berean such a great church? Because we don't want to do anything more or anything less in these services than give God the glory. And so if you came today to hear a Jerry Seinfeld comedy sketch, you came to the wrong place. If you came here to move and groove and shake, rattle and roll, then you got your directions mixed up. You need to go up the highway north about seven, eight, nine miles on the right-hand side of the road. and You find all of that that you want. I want to come to church and be able to leave here I want to be able to say that with a straight face. And I want to be able to say this and mean it. I want to say, as the psalmist said, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. I don't want to be the person who says, Church? I don't like church. What can you do to fix that for me? To God be the glory. Now let me finish then with this third observation. Number three is the future of the prayer for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Do we trust God for an uncertain future? Without hesitation, we all have to say no to that question. Because the kingdom is his, and because the power is his, and because the glory is his, the future is also his. Now, what does that word forever really mean? Well, I'll spare you the obvious interpretation that it means a long, long time. But what does forever really mean? Well, I think in the context here, it first means God's eternality. How long does God rule in his kingdom? The psalmist said, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. In Psalm 103:17, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children. Psalm 106, verse 48, Bless be the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise ye the Lord. See, God was here before it all started. He's here while it's going on. And he's going to be here until he's no longer here. See, if you can measure eternity past, then you have a measurement of eternity future. Now, let me save you the trouble of trying to think about that. Don't try to figure it out. Just understand that it's forever the future is forever in God's hands the kingdom is forever his power is forever his glory is forever and so if you fit into that classification that we began with that you are a child of the king and you can call God your father then you're going to be right there with him forever Now, you see that's really the key to this whole prayer the very first statement of the prayer is the key to everything here is God your Father. And if you trusted Christ as your Lord and your King, He is your Father forever. The second thing that we see about it is God's reliability. Robert Ingersoll, who was the famous atheist, said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Would you raise your hand right now if you're willing to die with those words on your lips? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to trust your soul to the very same person who has trouble deciding which toothpaste you're going to buy? I mean, how reliable are your decisions? I mean, is there anybody here that can say, well, everything's always worked out fine for me. I mean, everything, every decision I've ever made has been great. How many of you ever changed your mind? Now, all in all, I would say that none of us are too reliable, are we? Are you going to put your faith in me? Are you going to trust your mom and your dad or your children or your brothers and sisters that they will do right by you 100% all of the time? You see the dilemma that we're all in? Everybody, no matter how trustworthy they are, worthy they are is just like you. They're all changeable, they're all fickle. But what does God say about that? Who should you trust? Well, He says in Malachi, For I am the Lord, I change not. He is reliable. Now, that's as simple as saying that if he ever made a promise, it's never going to change. If he ever saved you, it's never going to change. If you ever get to heaven, it will never change. If he has your future, it will never change. Now, you see, that's the full circle of the Lord's Prayer. If he is your Father at the beginning of the prayer, he is your Father forever at the end of the prayer. Jesus does not start this prayer with God and then end it with you. It begins with God and it ends with God. Now this is the model prayer then. This is, this is the teaching tool that Jesus gave. And if our prayers are like this prayer, that we have the intention of God in the beginning, our Father, we have God in the middle, give us, and God at the end, for thine is, then you've just discovered the secret of prayer. Has it really been a secret? mean, you've known this all along, haven't you? You've had it right here in the Bible all all along. You've been saying this all of your life. You just needed to have it broken down to see what Jesus really meant when he said, After this manner, therefore pray ye. Relationship, reverence, rule, rapport, resources, repentance, righteousness, respect. What is your relationship to God Is God your Father? That's what makes the whole thing work. And I hope today that every one of you here knows Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That's the only way that you're ever going to be able to come to God in prayer. It's the only way you'll ever be able to understand all these things that we've talked about from the Lord's Prayer is if you have a relationship to the Father. And that only comes through Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you don't know him, trust him today. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful study that we've had in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, I do understand that I'm inadequate to explain all of this. There's so much more here that we could go through this time and time again, and we would still be mining the depths of your word to find out what all of this means. But Lord, I do pray that in these feeble attempts that your people have taken this to heart, that they understand it a little more clearly now, and that all of our prayers would be done in such a way that we glorify you, understanding who you really are and who we are, and that you are the only one who even gives us can give us the permission to speak to you at all. We thank you that Jesus Christ has made that possible for us. So I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would come to understand that the only way they can ever go to heaven, the only way they ever have a relationship with the Father is through Jesus Christ. For Christians, I pray that you would draw them closer to you and, Lord, that they would learn something from this model prayer that helps them every single day of how to approach you in the right way, to ask in the right way, giving all glory and honor that's due to you. You deserve to be praised. We thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.